and uh, I sit under it along with you as we come to learn together. And so I want us to walk away not saying, wow, what a great sermon, uh, what a great pastor, but what a great God and what a great Bible he has given us. Um, We've been working our way through the book of Exodus, through the the tabernacle, and uh, coming to chapter 31, the end of chapter 31, looking at the Sabbath. And I want you to just pause for a moment and uh, close your eyes if you need to. Picture yourself laying in the sand, the gentle ocean quietly lapping at the shore just a few feet off of your feet. The bright sun softly penetrating your eyelids, warming your whole body, the sound of rustling palm trees in the breeze. Ooh, it's not minus 20 out. It's not minus 20 out. We love rest, don't we? We love it. It's satisfying. There's something so deeply rejuvenating about that getaway. And loving rest so much, why are we so bad at it? Why do we fail at it so frequently? As much as we love rest, uh, I dare say we live in a culture that idolizes productivity. It's all about the hustle. Get her done. Get to work. If you go out on the street and, and just randomly ask any 10 people, just a generic question, how's it going? If you, if you talk with 10 people, I think about 15 times you're going to hear the word busy. I'm busy. Life's so busy. Things are busy. Dads are working long shifts, maybe two jobs over time. Um, you get home and there's things to be fixed and renos to be done and taxes and bills and different things to do. Moms are working too, running themselves ragged, getting kids to school and then to sports practice and music lessons and, and uh, getting homework done, making sure you're reading the most biblical of all biblical counseling, biblical parenting books. Um, you want to get it right because in our culture, being busy is having value to the point that actually productivity comes to define our personhood. Um, We're even willing to discard the unborn and the elderly, at least partly because we don't see the sanctity of life created in the image of God. We see the value of life based on the value of what you produce. And so we sacrifice rest on the altar of productivity. And those who don't, those who rebel against this cult of productivity, um, so easily just slide into the other ditch, don't they? And we treasure rest to the point of laziness. No drive, no ambition, no, no job, no future plans, and rest and the easy life then becomes our God. Rest was built right into the fabric of who we are as humanity, Uh, But because of sin, it is so hard to do it well. And and that's true physically, and it's also true spiritually, and and that's exactly what the Sabbath is all about. So uh, again, look with me, Exodus 31. This is going to be our last stop in uh, our journey through the tabernacle. Um, It's been uh, a long but wonderful ride. I hope you've enjoyed it half as much as I have. It has been awesome to see. Um, next week, we'll be back into Philippians, and actually the following week, um, Josh Gosen is going to be preaching, so I'm excited about that coming up. Um, but Exodus 31, looking at the command of the Sabbath, 
And we're going to ask three questions of the Sabbath. Um, What is it? Who's it for? And what does it mean for us? What is it? Who's it for? And what does it mean for us? So to answer the first question, what is the Sabbath? um, Let's just begin reading these commands. So chapter 31, starting in verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, You're to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So there's the command for the, for the Sabbath there, but actually if we slip ahead to chapter 35, um, we see it again, and I want to read chapter 35, verses 1 to 3. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel, and he said to them, These are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you um, that it is true and trustworthy, that it is living and active, and that your Holy Spirit would take it. We ask now, work in our lives, God. Help us to understand the Sabbath and what it means and what it means for us. God, I pray that you would... Uh, guide my words this morning that they would be true um, to your word. And Lord, again, that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, that we might be challenged and changed, that we might be conformed more to the image of Christ and more in awe of his wonder and his beauty, that we would treasure him more deeply this morning. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first order of business, what is the Sabbath? And it's Commanded here, as we've read in this um, tabernacle account. But if you've been paying attention, this isn't the first place we've seen it. We saw it months ago. Uh, It was actually first commanded in Exodus 16, when the manna came and the Lord said, don't collect on the seventh day, Um, it's a Sabbath. And and then it came most clearly in Exodus chapter 20 uh, as one of the Ten Commandments. And it says there, 20, verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or your sojourner who is with you in the gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So what we have 
here alongside these tabernacle instructions is actually a reiteration of one of the Ten Commandments. That's a big deal. Why this command and not some of the others? Right? Why not build the tabernacle and, by the way, don't murder while you do it? That, that would have seemed like a good command to follow. Uh, why not build the tabernacle and, and do not commit idolatry while you do it? That, that also would have seemed very applicable here, but no, it's the Sabbath that makes this reappearance. And actually, it's interesting where it falls in the structure of the book as well. Um, this last section of the book of Exodus, um, it has these three parts to it. We've been flipping back and forth between the, the command to build the tabernacle and the account of the obedience in doing it, um, but there's a piece in the middle. So chapters 20 to 31 has the law and the directions on here's how to build the tabernacle. The Lord's saying this is the right way to, to worship me. And then chapters 32 to 34 in the middle is the account of the golden calf and the rebellion. God says this is the right way to worship me, and then they fail at it. Uh, and then picking up again in 35 to 40 is them building the tabernacle and obeying God. And then the, the glory of God comes down in, in chapter 40. Um, and so this is them returning to right worship. But as we kind of see that three-part structure, um, the Sabbath is the last piece in the instructions and the first piece before they begin to build again. It's given this prominent place saying, hey, look at me. This is important. This matters. And, and if we missed all of that, the Lord just begins this command uh, in verse 31 saying, above all, above all, remember the Sabbath. This is significant. And so what exactly is this command? Well, it's a command to rest. I'm always interested when, when translators decide not to translate a word, um, and that's what happens here. Uh, if you've ever used the word Sabbath, congratulations, you speak Hebrew. Um, your pronunciation's a little off, but that's okay. Um, it's a good start, it, and it simply means rest. But there's a reason they didn't translate it, and, and that's because it, it, it becomes a technical term. It becomes a proper term for this specific rest, this idea of Sabbath rest, a day of rest once every seven with particular requirements. And, and there's a lot of smoke around what exactly is permitted or not permitted on the Sabbath. And the, um, the Jews in their, in their zeal to protect the law, as we've seen a few times, they, they made then extra commandments as kind of a guardrail around the law. And they got so far into the weeds to talk about how many steps you could take and, and, and exactly how heavy a burden you could lift and all of the things that you could and could not do. Um, but what exactly is commanded? Let's just do a quick biblical survey here. Um, chapter 31, as we read, says, don't work. 35 adds, um, not even to kindle a fire in your home. Uh, if you remember back to 16, the Lord told him, don't, don't collect manna on the seventh day. Nehemiah 10.31 says that they were not to buy and sell on the Sabbath. Uh, Jeremiah 17.21-22 says uh, they were not to carry a heavy burden on the Sabbath. And then Exodus 20, um, where it's listed among the Ten Commandments, says that the, the Sabbath is for you and your sons and your daughters and your male servants and your female servants uh, and your foreigners and your livestock. It's for everyone. Um, it was to be uh, across the land. Even those who didn't belong to Israel, uh, who were in Israel, were to keep it. 
So God commanded at the end of his instructions how to build the tabernacle. And again at the beginning, as you work, as you sacrifice and serve and sweat to build this tabernacle, every seven days, stop, pause, rest. Why? Well, I think there's two reasons uh, there in, in chapter 31 in particular. And, and I want to start with the second reason, the, the lesser of the two. And, and it is the, in part simply for physical rest, to be refreshed and renewed. And, and I think that's why verse 17, he, he refers to creation. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in the sixth day the Lord made the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now we know that God is infinite. He, he doesn't grow weary. He's not tired. He wasn't even by the creation of the universe. He wasn't somehow depleted. And yet it says he rested and was refreshed. What's that about? Well, it's, it's God being a model for us. It's God setting this rhythm, this example of, of hard work punctuated by intentional rest. And the Lord is instructing Israel, um, this is part of how I created you. This is part of what it means to be a creation. And, and so as he's giving these tabernacle instructions, he points back to that example in creation and says, this is an example for you. You need rest. You're not infinite. But just like the rest of the tabernacle, um, there's so much more going on here under the service. There's so much embedded in this. And the first reason uh, for the Sabbath, the primary reason for this rest is not physical, it's spiritual. And, and that's clear in verse 13. The Lord commands, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. So let's go back to that above all. That's huge. And think of the ground that we've covered over the last weeks. Make an altar for sacrifice to show that sin demands death and that I, your God, will provide a substitutionary death on your behalf. Make a wash basin to show that though your sins are like filthy rags, I will wash you and make you white as snow. Make a, a tabernacle structure as my promise that my presence is going to be with you. Make a table and put this bread of the presence on it as a way of showing God wants to have this intimate fellowship, this, this table fellowship with his people. Make a lampstand. To show that, that I will be your light and your life. Make an altar of incense to show that I, the Lord, delight in, the, in your prayers as the smell of incense. And make an ark with an atonement cover to show that, that though the law condemns you, I will cover your sin. I will make a way for you to be in my presence. And after all of that, he says, above all, keep the Sabbath. Utmost importance. Stop what you're doing. Stop even building the tabernacle. Stop and rest. Why? So that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Sanctify means to make holy, to set you apart, to make you his precious people. All your busyness, all your work, all your religious duty, stop it. Just put it on hold. 
to force you to remember that that's not what makes you special. That's not what makes you important and precious in my eyes. I do that. I, the Lord, make you holy. You're not my chosen people because you do these things. I don't love you based on what you can produce for me. You're my chosen people, period. And flowing out from that is this privilege for your joy to walk in these things, to build this tabernacle. I invite you to do it. And so the Sabbath was to be a day of rest from work in order to be with the Lord as this act of faith. As if to say, Lord, we know that our position as your holy people is not something we can earn. And and so it's not affected by the fact that we pause here for a moment. It's a gift. It's not put in jeopardy by my rest. That's what the Sabbath is all about. Now the second question, who's it for? And and this question seems to have a a lot of confusion around it. Um, Should we keep the Sabbath? Some of you probably grew up in homes where uh, it was considered breaking the Sabbath to go shopping on Sunday or maybe even to go out to eat after church. I remember uh, reading Little House on the Prairie growing up and, and reading it to my kids. And, and, and these, these poor girls are sitting stiff as a board on the bench, not able to play, don't move, don't talk, just wait until the Sabbath is over. And it seems to me, even good preachers who, who come to this passage kind of throw their hermeneutics out the window, and it drives me nuts. They're, they're so eager to apply some good principles from this passage that they just kind of skip over how to interpret this well and 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 their applications aren't wrong but how they get there can be really unhelpful we need to see this clearly who does this command apply to and we just have to ask a few questions first of all we know the sabbath was saturday right and so sabbath keeping on the sunday is impossible it doesn't work that way And actually, if we're keeping the Sabbath, um, we need to just admit, if you break the Sabbath, it's not a, you shouldn't have done that, it's death. It's a big deal. Let me ask you this. You ever sacrificed a lamb on the altar? One in the morning, one in the evening? Do you have a priest who burns incense on the altar of incense for you? Are you careful not to wear clothing of mixed fabrics or plant fields with different kinds of crops? It's the last time you had bacon. Let's not talk about that. (laughs) And if not those laws, why this one? Why would we apply the Sabbath and not the other laws that are all together with it, this is the Mosaic Covenant. This is the old covenant that God had with his people, Israel. And, and it's more than that. It's not just part of the old covenant. The Sabbath in particular is a sign of the covenant. Verse 13, this is a sign between me and you throughout your generation. Verse 17, this is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. When God made covenants with his people, he often gave them a sign. He gave them a token, uh, something of marking them as part of this covenant, setting them apart and, and constantly reminding them of this covenant. We have one that, that we live in that we see 
often, right? After the flood with Noah, God made a covenant with all of mankind that he would not destroy the world again by a flood, and he gave a sign. It's a rainbow. And when we see the rainbow, we're reminded of God's covenant with us that remains to this day. There are more signs and covenants. Uh, Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham and said, I'm going to make your family great. I'm going to make them more numerous than the sands of the sea. And, And he gave them a sign, and it was circumcision. And so all the people who were part of that covenant family received the sign. And Israel was part of the lineage of Abraham, and so they did as well. And I know there's a lot of talk about circumcision today, but um, that's not required of us. We're not under the Abrahamic covenant. We don't bear the sign. This is another covenant in this line of covenants that God has been building And Exodus 19 is where we kind of, I think, see maybe one of the clearest glimpses of it. The Lord says to Moses, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then he begins to lay out the Ten Commandments and the law and the the tabernacle and this covenant sign of the Sabbath. All of those who are part of this kingdom of priests, this holy nation under this law, would keep the Sabbath to mark them, to remind them of this covenant that, that I, the Lord, sanctify. And so if you're going to keep the Sabbath, we need to keep all of the law of Moses as well. They all hang together. But we're not Israel. We're not under that covenant. We're not there anymore. We're not bound by the Old Testament laws. And so uh, people often get caught up in this, and you'll hear those, you know, the atheist gotcha moment. Well, how come you wear clothes with two different kinds of... Because we're not under that covenant. That's not inconsistency. We're not throwing away half the Bible. That doesn't apply to us in the same way. We can learn from it, but we're not under it. And, And that actually, this is where people get uncomfortable, that actually includes the Ten Commandments. That's part of the Mosaic Covenant. God's covenant to to Israel. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled that old covenant. He he brought it to completion. When he brought in the new covenant, um, those things no longer apply. And and so with regard to the Sabbath specifically, Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink. Did, Did Israel have to worry about food? Absolutely they did. Does the new covenant? No. Let no one pass judgment on you in, in, in question of food or drink with regard to festivals or new moons. Does Israel have to worry about festivals? Yeah. Sabbath? And, and Paul says these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Those laws, this whole old covenant was building this promise for the, for the coming Redeemer who would bring the reality of what those things were just a, a shadow of. It was a signpost. You go to Disney World, like nobody, nobody leaves Disney World to go back to the sign along the highway and say, hey, look, you know, 20 kilometers to Disney World. No, nobody cares about the sign anymore. It helped get us there, but now we're there. Don't go back to the sign. Those no longer apply to us. The Sabbath has been completed. Um, those were a shadow pointing forward to Christ. We're not under them. 
And that's why, actually, as the church uh, began to meet as early as the book of Acts, um, they began meeting on Sunday morning instead of Saturday. They didn't meet on the Sabbath. They, they met on the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the gra- grave. Uh, Acts 20, verse 7 is one example among many. On the first day of the week, they were gathered together to break bread, and Paul talked with them. And so, just as we wrestle through this, because I hear my son saying, no more Ten Commandments, is it true? Do, what do we do with that? It makes us a little uncomfortable. Did you just throw out the Ten Commandments? Kind of. We're not under that law anymore. Is there anything in the new covenant that might restrict us in the same way? Do any of those commandments show up again? Absolutely they do. Absolutely they do. Every one of those commandments is reiterated again and in fact deeper and broader uh, in the new covenant. Except one. The Sabbath. Nine of those commandments restated, rebuilt in to the new covenant, not the Sabbath. Why? Why is it left out? And if the command of the Sabbath isn't binding on us, then what do we do with it? What does it mean for us? So there's our third question. What does this mean for us? And as we did looking at what it meant for them, uh, I want to start by looking at the second answer, the less significant answer. And as we look at the Sabbath, even as part of the the old covenant law that no longer is binding on us, it does still mean we should observe times of God-honoring rest. God commanded them to rest because they needed it. And he pointed back to the cycle of creation, reminding them of this example that God built in right to the first seven days. And and though we're not under the the law, under the command of the Sabbath, I think we can still see in this that there's wisdom here, that rest is good. We still need rest. On the seventh day, God stopped. He put down his work. He enjoyed the beauty of his creations. It is, it's very good. And then he rested in it. Do you regularly, intentionally stop and step back for intentional God-honoring rest? Now, remember, this isn't the law. This is wisdom. There's a difference there. And so Romans 14, as Paul is kind of wading through some of these things, he's addressing these kind of wisdom issues, these debatable issues, issues of kind of personal conscience. And he talks about some who who eat only vegetables while others eat meat as well, which is right. And he talks about some who hold certain days as holy, maybe Sabbaths, maybe these holidays and festivals, and others who would say, no, every day is the same. And he says this, Romans 14, verse 5, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord, and the one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. So here's the deal. Sabbath, 
well, do you, do you want to protect your Saturday or, or maybe your Sunday and, and make it a strict day of, of complete rest from, from one sunset to the next, uh, eating only leftovers so you don't have to cook and not turn on your oven? Um, you can do that. You're free to do that. If that's how you want to give thanks to the Lord and honor Him as you rest, go nuts. If you're convinced in your own heart and that's how you want to honor the Lord, that's, that's within that's within bounds. And if you decide that every day is alike, that you might have to work on a Sunday every now and then, or maybe you don't often get a full day off, or maybe what is restful for you is something that others may not consider restful, you can do that. We're not under the law here. Now, I want to be clear, the, the command to gather together as the church for worship and preaching and prayer and communion, that's different. That is clearly commanded. That's not an optional thing. But as far as observing certain days, the point of Romans 14 is that, that those who are strict about it can honor the Lord in that, but what they can't do is judge others who are not strict and, and say, I'm better than them because I do it this way. And and those who are free to, 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 to live a, a, a little more openly, a little more relaxed on those things, um, they're not free then to, to disdain those who are strict and to look down on them. So Paul says, you can do either, but we can't judge one another on it because this isn't law, this is conscience. And, and this, this comes down to just everyone deciding for themselves, how to walk out the details within the bounds of what God has commanded and just understanding this issue uh, in grace. That the different people are going to walk it out in different ways. That's, that's really uncomfortable. Law is so much easier because I can look at you and look at me and see that we're doing the exact same thing. We must be on the right page. It's uncomfortable to have to look over and go, oh, they're doing that a little different than me. Is that okay? Am I all right with that? And, and it makes us think a little more. It's not as safe. And, and this applies to all kinds of things. This, this applies to alcohol, not drunkenness, but the consumption of alcohol. This, this comes down to what, what shows you watch in your home. Obviously, again, there is a line where we can clearly say, no, that's sin. Um, but there are areas of just wisdom there. This comes down to, do you homeschool or do you public school? Boy, you can really get yourself hung on either side if you open your mouth in the wrong context. Um, this, is, this is wisdom. We need to operate with grace and understanding with one another. And we're to have this ample grace as we approach this idea of the Sabbath, as, as, as holding one day as holy. But the wisdom of Scripture says to all of us, one way or another, rest. Rest is important. Take a day a week for God honoring rest. Rest well, there are so many gifts of God wrapped up in rest. Rest builds humility. When you rest, you're forced to admit that you're not God. That if I step away from being productive for a day, the world doesn't come to a screeching halt. It'll be all right. I'm not that important. Rest is this constant reminder to our pride. And if you're not able to do that, if you, you just can't let go for 24 hours, there's a deeper-rooted pride there that, that isn't debatable. That needs to be dealt with. Josh and I were talking about that this morning. He's not here. He's sick. How do you feel about that, buddy? 
Well, it's hard to let go. It's hard to not be there. It's hard to admit that, sorry, Josh, we're doing fine, man. We love you. Can't wait for you to get back. Um, but the world goes on. We need to remind ourselves of that. God-honoring rest also relieves a lot of stress. We regularly train ourselves to step back, to remind ourselves that I'm not God, that the world won't come to a screeching halt without me, and it means those burdens aren't mine to carry. I don't have to worry about that. He's the one who will ultimately provide for my family. He's the one who will keep the world turning. He's the one who will be sure that that those things that are truly important will actually get done. It's not on my shoulders. It's It's not about me. Sometimes I just need to breathe out and put my tools down, uh, stop running, stop thinking, stop being productive just to remind myself that it's not my burden. God is God, so I don't have to be. That's a beautiful thing. I read a doctor uh, who said, we as doctors in the treatment of nervous diseases are compelled to provide periods of rest. Some of these periods are, I think, only Sundays in arrears. Hmm. How many neglected Sundays do you have built up? How many days of not resting that may all of a sudden come crashing in in overwhelming anxiety or panic attacks? We need rest. We need to have our pride brought low. We need to have that anxiety lifted off. So often when things get busy and the pressure comes in, we, we go the other way. I've got to be more productive, more engaged, more 110% when what we actually need uh, is God honoring rest and rolling that burden off to Him. Um, it's one thing to say, I trust Him. That's another thing to actually step back and rest, leaving the burden on Him. Uh, that's tough. But it's so good for us. So God-honoring rest builds humility, it relieves stress, and it also infuses joy into life. The Lord finished His work on the sixth day. He looked over everything He had made. He said, it is good, and then He rested. He enjoyed the fruit of His labor. And, and God invites us to do the same, to take a day to just enjoy. 1 Timothy six seventeen says, For the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to be arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So God-honoring rest helps us in doing that. It takes our hope off of riches, puts it back on God, and then we get to enjoy, rightly enjoy, the things that He's blessed us with. We get so caught up in being the one who provides and storing up riches and putting our our trust in riches that we never stop and enjoy the things that he's given us. And we ought to. Now I have to confess, a year and a half ago, I would have had a really hard time preaching this sermon. I was failing at God honoring rest. And, And it's easy to justify when the thing that you're pouring yourself into is the church, right? This is for you, God. I'll rest when I'm dead, right? That's what coffee is for. I'll get there. I'm superhuman. I can do it. And take days off. I was carrying way too much of the burden of the church on my own shoulder, thinking arrogantly, if I don't do it, who will? 
And, and as much as I love this church and, and this thing I get to call my job as I study God's word and, and, and to be your pastor, um, I was weary and stressed and my joy was suffering. And I look back and it scares me. I'm humbled that God allowed me to continue for so long in my arrogance, thinking I was so important to his church. He, he would have been right in line to just say, John, I need to prove to you and anyone else that, that this doesn't hinge on you. You're done. Um, so thankful that he gently corrected me through the loving leadership of our elders, through uh, Josh who came and would kick me in the pants week after week, take a day off, sit down, and, uh, and it's been really good. It's been a huge blessing in my life to just take a day a week and breathe out. Say, hey, guess what? People will be fine. Someone's crisis will wait until Tuesday. That's okay. And again, it's wisdom, legalistic on it, but resting regularly. And, and, and even now, I'm working through this again as I'm studying through this. How am I doing on my days off? Am I using them well? Am I resting in a way that honors the Lord? We, we need that. We need to think through these things and not, not neglect that, not take it haphazardly. But that's the secondary application of this passage. That is by far the lesser important. The question of what does this mean for us has an eternally more significant answer. Um, I said earlier, this was not commanded in the New Testament. And that's true. It's not explicitly commanded. uh, But it doesn't mean it's not there. It just changes. It morphs as it moves into the New Covenant The Old Covenant, they were to stop from their labors, stop from even building the tabernacle and rest. And it was to be a sign for them, remember, to remind them that it is the Lord who sanctifies. That their hard work, and when it was all done, it was the Lord who made them holy. It was by grace that they had become His people. That their position didn't depend on their work. The heart of the Sabbath for Israel was Above all, that their salvation was by trusting in God. It was salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, even then. So how do we obey the Sabbath? What what is the new covenant Sabbath? It's that we rest, not in a special day, but in Christ. Jesus is our Sabbath. Look again, Colossians 2.16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or regard to a festival, new moon, or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. As they were set apart and made different through the things that they ate and the way that they lived and the, and the, the habits that they kept, those were just a shadow pointing forward, and the substance is Christ. It was a sign pointing forward to Him Jesus came and taught that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, which if you look at the context here, um, that's a clear claim of his deity. He fully perfected the law. He kept it completely in everything he did. He, He did all there was to do. He offered himself as the final sacrifice. The sins of all those who would trust in him were placed on his shoulders and he paid the penalty. He paid our debt. He was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And then it struck me uh, Saturday morning as I was just kind of going through my morning reading through uh, the end of the book of John. 
John 19.30 tells of Jesus' last words before he died. Hanging on the cross, it says, when he had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. There's nothing left to do. It's done. It's completed. Hebrews 10.12 says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Our salvation accomplished. Signed, sealed, and delivered, and he rested because it's done. What do we think we would add to that? He purchased our rest. And so this urge that we have to be productive and to make some offering to God of all of the good things that we can do is so dangerous. It's so deadly. It's nothing other than pride. And it is the filter that keeps people out of the kingdom of God, out of salvation. Pride says, I can do it. I will go to church more. I will give more. I will clean my life up. I will serve God like no one has ever served God before. I can do it. Then I will have value before God. Then he will save me. Then God will see. But what's the focus there? What what receives the glory in that kind of mentality? Not grace, not not God for saving a poor helpless sinner, but me for getting God's attention, for working my way up into his grace, whatever that means in this context. It's precisely why why salvation is by faith alone. What is faith except humbly resting in Christ? Faith is our Sabbath. It's giving up on everything else, putting your work and your striving down and resting in what He has done. Salvation is not about where you put your effort. It's about where you put your rest. Do you trust in Him? Do you trust in His work? It's Sabbath. And that deceitful pride so often lingers. Even for those of us who are truly saved. Still fighting this nagging feeling that I need to, I need to earn God's approval, that like we need to, to prove ourselves. But there's a repetition of the command of the Sabbath in the New Testament. It would be here. It's, it's John 15. Abide in me. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Do you rest in Christ? I don't care what you accomplish for Christ. I want to know that you rest in Christ. That's the... That's the crucial question. That's the, that's the question of Matthew 7, 21. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and do many miracles in your name and cast out demons in your name? And I'll say to them, I never knew you. You never rested in me. I don't care how much you read the Bible, how much you go to church, how much you give to the poor how much you do anything else, do you abide in Christ? Those things are fruit of abiding. If you're not doing any of those things, you need to stop and ask, am I abiding? 
But if I'm doing these things and not abiding, they, they count for nothing. This is something that, that terrifies me for the North American church. For my own kids, it is so easy to do the religious thing to do the exterior actions week after week and day after day and not truly abide in Christ. Those who abide in Him, rest in Him, will bear fruit, transform lives. And those who do not abide in Him, those who insist in resting in their own effort, just as those who neglected the Sabbath were to be put to death, Jesus warns they'll be broken off as worthless branches. They'll be thrown into the fire. God will not tolerate it. It's so easy to convince ourselves that we're part of the people of God by the things that we do outwardly and not by resting in Christ. Church, remember the Sabbath. Stop your labor, give up your striving, and just rest in Him. He is the one who sanctifies you. He's the one who made, makes you holy. Abide in Christ. And there is, of course, that promise of the great Sabbath to come. The rest for eternity that he has purchased. The Sabbath was a sign in the Old Covenant. Those who rested on the seventh day showed we trust in the Lord. By our rest, we're remembering and declaring that that he's the one who sanctifies us. There are two signs in the new covenant. Baptism is the initial sign, saying, I'm in. My my life, that old sinful me who cared about sin and self, he's been crucified with Christ. I've been risen again to newness of life. And the ongoing sign, the second sign, is communion. As we regularly meet together, eat of bread and and drink of the cup and remind ourselves that we're resting in Jesus. It's about His accomplished, completed work on our behalf. This is His body broken for me. This is His blood poured out for me. This is why I have peace. It's resting in Him. Communion is this physical act of declaring uh, that we trust Him, that we're resting in Christ. So we're going to celebrate communion together. I want to invite the worship team to come. Um, and I just want to invite you to, to think about this as we celebrate communion. And, and I think as is obvious from this, this is for those um, who've put their faith in Christ. Um, I wouldn't make a law of this, but I would say this is only for those who are baptized, who have taken that initial sign to now have the ongoing sign. It wouldn't make sense for those who are not trusting in Christ, and it would actually dishonor it. And so I want to encourage you, if that's not you this morning, just hang out in your seat. That's okay. Think about what it means to trust in Christ and to rest in Him and His finished work on our behalf. Um, We have communion, as you see, set up here. Um, We thought that would be more appropriate for this morning rather than passing it along. Uh, And so um, as we sing this next song, I just want to invite you to kind of cycle out by your rows and just come and and grab a a cup. There's the the juice in the top and the bread in the bottom, so you only need one. And uh, just take from the front and try not to touch the others. And uh, and hang on to it as you return to your seat, and we'll partake together uh, in a few minutes. Um, Would you stand as we sing and, and prepare our hearts for communion?